This is episode 65 of the Creative Giant Show. I'm Charlie Gilkey. Thanks so much for joining me today. Coaching is a powerful way of being with people because it unlocks human potential and transforms the way you relate to others. But it's also really misunderstood, misrepresented, and when done right, hard to do. Michael Bungay Stanier, a dear co-coaching partner and award-winning coach, joins me today to work through some powerful coaching questions you can use at both work and home. Make sure to listen in for the turn in the conversation about two-thirds of the way through this episode, too. Ready? Let's do this. Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Michael Bungay Stanier is the founder and senior partner of Box of Crayons, a company that helps organizations all over the world do less good work and more great work. Box of Crayons are best known for their coaching programs that help time-crunched managers coach in 10 minutes or less. Michael left Australia 22 years ago to be a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University, where his only significant achievement was falling in love with a Canadian, which is why he now lives in Toronto, having spent time in London and Boston. He has written a number of books, the best known with almost 100,000 copies. Sold is Do More Great Work, one of my personal favorites. But the book Michael's most proud of is In Malaria, a collection of essays on great work from leading thinkers which raised $400,000 for Malaria No More. Michael was also the first Canadian coach of the year, which is pretty good for an Australian. Balancing out these moments of success, Michael was banned from his high school graduation for the balloon incident, was sued by one of his law school lecturers for defamation, and his first published piece of writing was a Mills and Boone short story called The Mail Delivery. I show all this because Michael's just a fun guy, and he wrote some of this too, so there you go. Michael and I have jammed before in our Making Plans That Work teleseminar, which is available in the free content library on ProductiveFlourishing.com and in other projects as well. I'm delighted to introduce you to Michael Bungay-Stanier. This is going to be a fun conversation. Let's go. Michael, thanks so much for the great work you do. And um, I always have to tease about this because like, I owe you royalties for great work. Like, I'm, you know, as, as I'm starting to talk more and more about best work, which is a, sl- a shade different. I'm like, man, Michael started it all with great work. And I appreciate what you've done and what you're doing right now. Hey, Charlie, thank you. And, you know, honestly, you're giving me too much credit. You know, I always think that the work that I do, the work that lots of us do in this space, it's uh, old wine and new bottles. And like, I have a good bottle, I have a couple of good bottles, but the wine is what really makes the, the, the drink taste. And that we're drawing on collective wisdom about how do we all live a life of meaning and how do we live a life of impact and how do we be happy. And, um, you know, there's, there's not that many new things out there about that. It's about how do you find a way to talk about it that sparks something in other people and the people that you and I both serve. You know, that ties in. First off, as you can tell, Michael is very, very humble. Um, great For work. good looking as me, I am quite humble. <laughs> um, so, you know, his, his book, Do More Great Work. For me, great work triggers all of the great questions and tools and models that you're in there. So it's, it's a great way for me to sit down. I was like, where's my great work? Where's my best work, right? In different ways of thinking through that. Um, and that's one of the reasons I love your new book, The Coaching Habit, Say Less, Ask More, and Change the Way You Lead. And, you know, we're talking about that. And you and I are both coaches, you know, um, yeah. you, 
you were, you know, for an Australian, you were the top Canadian coach of the year. Like you, you, you're one of those right. master coaches, which is one of the many reasons I love talking to you anytime I get a chance. Yeah. Um, so we understand coaching as a way of being in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned in the book that every manager knows they need to coach. Yeah. Um, but I know coaching seems like yet another thing that right. you know, is added to their plate and that they don't have time for. And, and isn't coaching HR's job? Exactly. Yeah, you're, you're nailing part of the resistance to coaching. You know, there's been some statistics about how coaching has taken off within organizations. And that's where I spend most of my time looking at kind of medium and larger organizations. And, you know, the, the numbers are, and I'm not going to get them quite right, Charlie, but it's something like 75% of all managers have taken coach training. Great, fantastic. That's all probably a good thing. And then it's like less than 20% of people who are getting coaching feel that it's actually very useful. And 10% of people feel that it's actively dangerous. <laughs> Can you imagine wow. going into those coaching calls? You're like, excellent. In the next hour, I, I, I'm sure I'll be demotivated and slightly crushed by my coaching experience. So, you know, coaching is really important and it's done poorly for the most part. And this is not because of a lack of goodwill or good intent, but it's actually because people have habits about how they manage and how they lead and it's hard to shift out of that. But the starting point, to, I think, to, to think about this transformation is to say, look, just as you said it, coaching isn't an additional task you add to your overwhelmed, over, overcrowded week. It's actually something that can transform the way you actually work with people in every interaction you have. Every interaction can be more coach-like. Um, and I think the other thing to notice is that coaching isn't just something you do to your direct reports. Every interaction with anybody can be more coach-like because, in fact, it's about leading with a little more curiosity and offering up a little less advice. And what I found is most people, are just they have an advice monster that lives within them. As soon as somebody starts talking, something in their brain goes, oh, I know what I need to tell them, and now I'm just waiting so you just stop talking so I can tell you the thing you need to know. Wait, wait, I have a question. <laughs> so it is hard to build a habit of curiosity. And that's really what this book is about, which is what's the simplest way to do that. And what we're offering up in the book is here are seven essential questions that can really make a difference. And here's the mechanics of making them an everyday habit. Why, why is it so hard for people to just listen, allow for that pause? Right. And then, you know, rather than saying this is what you should do, asking a great question or keeping, um, not being in that place where they're the advice monster is coming in. Why is that so hard? Well, I mean, it sounds simple, doesn't it? In terms of a shift of behavior, it's like just don't give as much advice and just ask a good question every now and then. But actually it's more complicated that I think you can actually tap back into neuroscience around this. You know, when I think about neuroscience, the, the, the starting point for me is to recognize that five times a second at an unconscious level, the brain is going, is it safe here or is it dangerous? If it's dangerous, I move into kind of fight or flight mode back away. If it feels safe, a place of reward, I'm likely to be more engaged. So it's useful if you're able to create an experience, a situation that feels safe, feels like it's a place of reward. But here's the thing. When you move into a more coach-like uh, format, you actually decrease that sense of safety for yourself, at least initially, because there are four drivers, I think, that really influence whether it feels safe or whether it feels dangerous. And it spells the word terror, T-E-R-A. 
So those four factors are tribiness, you know, are you with me or are you against me? Expectations, do I know what's going to happen or do I not know? Rank, are you more important or less important than me? And autonomy, are you making all the choices or do I get some say in this? Now, when you move into coaching mode, you decrease your own terror quotient because now you're asking a question rather than giving an answer. So actually you have less expectation. You're, you lower your own rank because you're actually saying to the other person, you can figure this out yourself rather than coming to me as an expert. So you lower your rank, you raise their rank. You lower your sense of autonomy because now you're giving them more choices rather than giving you more choices. Now, the good news is you're increasing the sense of engagement with them, their terror quotient, because now asking those questions lifts up all of those four factors, but it decreases yours. And that's one of the reasons that it's so hard to do this, to, to resist this, is it's like, you know what, it just feels a whole lot safer, more comfortable, more in control if I get to tell you what to do, even if in the long term or even in the sort of short to medium term, that's not the most effective way to manage and lead. Okay, so that's the Terra quotient, T-E-R-A. Right. All right, so, you know, working with managers, I know a lot of things that come up is like, but I don't have time right. to go through this dialogue process and fit you, to let you own the answers and <laughs> you might get it wrong. And then, like, we got stuff to do, man. Exactly. So, um, uh, the guy who, who popularized emotional intelligence. Daniel Goleman. Thank you. Daniel Goleman um, wrote an article for Harvard Business Review quite a few years ago now, maybe 15 years ago. The article is called Leadership That Gets Results. And what he says is that um, there's actually six different styles of leadership, and each of them have their pros and their cons. Each of them are appropriate in some circumstances, not so useful in others. And what he noticed was that really strong leaders know how to use all six leadership styles um, whereas typical leaders typically had two or maybe three styles. And what he also found is that coaching, one of the leadership styles, was the least utilized of the styles, even though it had a really clear correlation to driving engagement and actually driving profitability as well. So coaching is um, an effective leadership style. But as you're saying, most managers are going, I don't have time for this touchy-feely stuff and can we come into my office for two hours to weep and moan about life? And that's true. They don't have time for that. But part of what um, we stand for in the book is to say, look, we think coaching can take place and has to take place in 10 minutes or less. And here's where we make a break with people like you and other executive coaches, people like me in the past, certainly, because executive coaching is actually a poor role model for busy managers and leaders. Because executive coaches, even though there's similarities obviously in what happens executive coaches get to come in they have a 45 minute or a 60 minute time put aside they have a different kind of power relationship and it's just a different beast you know it's, it's not it's like a it's like a horse and a zebra you know they're kind of the same but they're kind of pretty different as well mm -hmm. so for managers it's like you don't have time to add coaching on to anything you do i get that entirely but what we're looking to do is actually transform the way you work currently. So it's not like, it's like imagine a glass of water. You can't pour any more water into the glass because the glass is full. But if you drop a little dye into it, you're going to change the color of the water. And that's what we're doing with the ideas and the tactics in this book is give you a way of transforming the way you work. So actually what I want people to be able to do is work less hard, but have more impact. 
That seems like a good goal. Work less hard, have more impact. You know, it it reminds, be, if not a good goal, at least a good marketing book. So more people want to buy the book. And the Absolutely. Well, when we go with whatever works, you know, it reminds me, there's several things that have come up for me. One is, um, I'm sure you've read the great book, Touch Points by, um, and, and why I love Touch Points is it focuses on those moments in between all this other stuff, that that's where leadership happens. And, you know, we can say in those moments in between work, in between the meetings is where coaching happens. Right. Right. Um, that's where leadership happens, not in the performance evaluation where that's where coaching happens. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if you're doing it, if you're doing coaching during the performance evaluation, I mean, I'm going to go as far as to say you're doing it wrong. Right. right. You're doing both wrong. Right. Well, yeah. I think you're right. I think you're right. And just even confusing the two of those is not the, the right place to go. So let's call him the inner philosopher within and, and give a good working definition of coaching. You know, there's, there are a billion different definitions of coaching out there. I know because I have read them all and I've researched them. Um, the way we think about the, the process of coaching at Boxer Crowns is pretty simple, which is new insight about yourself or about the situation leads to positive behavior change. In other words, you do something differently, which leads to an increase in impact, which hopefully then circles back to new insights about yourself or others. Now, that's kind of, that describes the process of what good coaching should generate. If you want to define coaching itself, you know, I tend to go with uh, John Whitmore's uh, definition and he says something like, I'll get it a bit wrong, but unlocking people's potential and helping people to learn rather than teaching them. And I think there's a lot wrapped up in those two short sentences. Fantastic. Um, you know, and I want to throw that out there because we get into coaching and advising and mentoring and yeah. you know, it gets confusing, but you know, that's a working definition. So I mean, I honestly, and it's just let me say, Charlie, um, I don't care if you call this stuff coaching or not, you know, honestly, and it's, it actually matters because sometimes you go into an organization and you go, Hey, coaching. And everyone's like, Oh God, not this again. We've had, we've had 15 years of people ramming coaching down and it's just annoying. It's just HR touchy feely waste of time. And I'm like, let's topple the statue that's capital C coaching and just realize that coaching is just a way of being with each other and showing up a leadership style. And it's a tool that can help you be more effective, focus more on the stuff that matters and make everybody happier. That's what that's about. And that's why I love you to death. Um, I mentioned several things come up. You know, when you were talking about the coaching habit uh, and and the terror quotient and what makes that terrifying, um, you know, I work with a lot of people on the delegation habit, right? How do you develop a habit of delegation? And the parallel here is that when you become better at delegating, in a lot of ways, you decrease your importance, right? Because so many people hold on to everything, the responsibilities, the projects, or tasks, because I'm the person that does that. That's mm-hmm. where I get my value in this organization. If I'm not doing that, mm-hmm. then what's, why am I here? <laughs> exactly. And there's an anxiety that managers feel around the way I add value is by giving people my ideas and telling them what to do. Whereas what I'm going to offer up is the way you add value is to hold the space that allows the other people to find their path, to have their ideas in a way that's safe because you're not going to let them go off and screw up. And this is not just do anything you want, but it is allowing them to create the new neural pathways that literally increase people's capacities and potential. Yeah. But Michael, and I know this is going to sound snarky, 
Um, I paid for um, my. I, 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 I'm telling you honestly, you can never sound snarky. You're just too nice, and you got that southern <laughs> accent thing going. You're like, come on, that's snarky. You're not. You're not even trying. All right, I'll, I'll put on my New York accent. <laughs> um, no, I won't because it's terrible. Um, you know, the thing about it is a lot of managers, especially as they rise to the ranks, they've paid a lot of money for those credentials for their, you know, they went to Harvard and they're, they, they know they've got that MBA and that's what makes them like the rock star manager, right? right. What they know. Yeah. Um, you know, how do you work through some of that? That's a really good question. And it, there's not a, there's not an easy answer to that. But um, one of the models that we talk about in the book is something called the drama triangle. Uh, now, the drama triangle has its roots in something called transactional analysis, which is a slightly dated therapeutic model from the 70s. It kind of gives us the language like parent-child relationships and adult-to-adult relationships. You know, kind of interesting, but not really useful in work situations typically. But Stephen Cartman came up with this triangle and he said, look, three roles play out when a relationship becomes dysfunctional and relationships always become dysfunctional. The three roles are victim, persecutor, and rescuer. Now, all models are wrong, but some are useful. So says George Box. So this is a useful but wrong model. But what I like about it is immediately people kind of go, oh, I think I know what those roles look like. You know, what does a victim look like and sound like? You know that. You know, what are the advantages to playing the victim role. Well, you can figure that out as well. People coming to help you out, you don't have any responsibilities. What are the disadvantages? Well, you're, you're stuck, People, you're annoying, you don't feel you can get anywhere, you're kind of doomed to be wherever you are for the rest of time. That's the victim. Persecutor, what does that look like? Well, the bully, obviously, or more subtly, the micromanager. So this kind of ties into the delegation piece. You know, what are the advantages to playing the role of the persecutor? Well, control, righteousness, sense of superiority. What are the disadvantages? Nobody likes you. Nobody's going to work hard for you. And you actually end up with a lot of work on your plate because you don't trust anybody. And then there's the rescuer. Sounds slightly better than the other two roles, but is equally as screwed up. You know, you know what the rescuer looks like. I'll jump in. I'll fix it. Give it to me. I'll sort that out. I'll take it on. Advantages, you feel important. You feel you've got fingers in every pie. Disadvantages, well, A, you're overwhelmed because you're trying to do everybody else's work, but B, you're also perpetuating the triangle. I mean, rescuers create victims. Rescuers create persecutors. So once you understand that drama triangle and you understand that you actually play all of those three roles all the time, but we actually do have a default role that we tend to go to. When I'm teaching people our programs and we've got the triangle laid out on the floor, I want to have a group of 30 people say around it, I go, go and stand by the role you play most often. And here's what happens every time. 95% of the people charge towards the rescuer role. And then you go, so how's that working for you? Doing my best, Dr. Phil. Mm-hmm. And everybody goes, you know what? I'm exhausted. I'm frustrated. I'm overwhelmed. I'm stuck. I've become a bottleneck. I've created a team that's overly dependent on me. And at that point, people get that visceral understanding about why they need to change their behavior. I can't give you the intellectual argument about why knowledge is bad because you'll just nod your head and go, yeah, but you don't know what knowledge I have. and I'm actually pretty smart. But what you see in that experience by bouncing around the drama triangle, and we unpack it a bit more in the book, 
is that there's real benefit to you to give up control to other people. So actually that you can go and do more of, you know, to use our language, good work or great work to have more impact and do work that has more meaning for you. Absolutely. And what I want to pull out is though the context for Michael's book is for busy managers, the model that we're talking about, and again, Michael and I are coaches. And so we have this mind share, but if you're listening to this, notice that that plays out in all relationships. Oh yeah. It's not just work and managerial stuff. Like you look around your house, where are you playing the victim? Oh yeah. Where are you playing the rescuer? Like how might you work through that? <laughs> I don't even want to talk about that. <laughs> like, so, so, keep, me, keep me where I'm comfortable, Charlie. Keep yeah, I'm, just, I'm just looking out the door at my, at my business partner and my wife over there. And yeah, we've got a drama triangle thing going on. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, all the time. But here's the thing about the drama triangle. You are stuck with it for life. And understanding the drama triangle, your goal is to recognize more quickly when you're in it to get out of it faster and to stay out of it longer before you get suckered back into it again. Cause you, you always get pulled back in. Fantastic. Alrighty. So I'm going to actually go through and list what those questions are because um, I'm going to have some questions that I want readers to know for context, what we're talking about here. Nice. Um, and so, you know, I'm looking in the wonderful book itself in this, in case you have the book or you're thinking about getting the book, it's going to be on page. Oh, let's see. 200. Um, so the, the, there are seven questions, the kickstart yeah. question, what's on, or yeah, what's on your mind mm-hmm. Two, the R question and what else R is an acronym there three, the focus question. But I, I'm going to come back to that number two question. I love this when I discovered it. See, we, in the book we say, and what else, the best coaching question in the world. And the fact that it spells AWE as an acronym Perfect. The universe aligned with me on that one. No, sorry, I interrupted, Charlie. You're on to the focus question. I'm on to the focus question. What's the real challenge here for you? Mm-hmm. Four, the foundation question. What do you want? Five, the lazy question. How can I help? Six, the strategic question. If you're saying yes to this, what are you saying no to? By the way, that's one of my favorite questions. But so I'll good, come back to it. Seven, the learning question. What's, what was most useful for you? Mm-hmm. So those are the seven questions. Again, page 200. Uh, yeah. So, um, and we'll have, Michael, do you mind if I list those in the show notes so people can look oh, at fantastic. them? fantastic. Yeah, for sure. So yeah. I'll list those in the show notes. So if you're listening and you're like, oh, I got to pause and, and go through that, please do. We're going to pause. Actually, you can pause us. We're going <laughs> to. We'll be back, yeah. All righty. So of those seven questions. Yeah. Which tends to be the questions that managers have the hardest time asking and getting right? Well, I'm going to tweak the question slightly and tell you that where I put most weight when I'm teaching these questions to managers, which are the two questions that I ask people to spend most time practicing. And it's questions uh, number two and number three. So those questions back for, for people listening. Um, so let me get to that real quick. Question two is, and what else? And what, mm-hmm. uh, what was the other number? Uh, number three. So number th- th- yeah, what's the real challenge here for you? Right. So let's start with number three. What's the real challenge here for you? In my experience, people in organizations and people in life are spending way too much time, working way too hard, coming up with brilliant solutions to the wrong problems. And it's very easy to be seduced by thinking the first challenge that shows up is the real challenge. 
Whereas typically it's just the first thing that gets mentioned and it's rarely the actual challenge. And there's a brilliant discipline to be able to actually spend just a little longer getting to the heart of what the real challenge is rather than rushing into action and ideas, which is where, where we're inclined to go. So if I teach a little kind of script to managers, it sounds like this, you know, what's the real challenge here for you? Nod your head and look interested regardless of what they're saying. And then you go, good, what else is the real challenge here for you? Nodding your head, looking interested, brilliant. Is there anything else here that's the real challenge? Okay, good, nice. All right, and then you lean in and you look interested and you go, okay, so what's the real challenge here for you? And what you're going to find is that in just two minutes, the conversation has deepened, it's shifted slightly, it's become more focused on the person you're talking to as well. Because what happens in the way that that question is phrased, it's the difference between asking the question, what's the real challenge? And what's the real challenge here for you? And, you know, in the coaching world, the, the jargon is the difference between coaching for development and coaching for performance. Coaching for performance, the way I think about it, Charlie, is it's like dealing with the fire. Mm-hmm. We've got to put the fire out. We've got to build the fire up. We've got to sort out the fire one way or the other. Coaching for development is focusing on the person who's dealing with the fire. In most of our life and most of our organizations, we're very focused on the fire. because it's bright, it's shiny, it's hot, it demands attention. But by simply adding those two words for you at the end of those questions, what happens is the conversation deals with the fire, but it also brings focus to the person. And that's where growth happens and that's where impact happens. So if I was going to say to managers to pick two questions, if I had to guess, it would be practice and master those two. What's the real challenge here for you? Stay curious because that's the first answer is not the real answer. And what else? And what else? Okay, so what's the real challenge here for you? That's fantastic. And if you've read about the about lean thinking and the Toyota production system, like it's a great way of making the five whys really accessible to people because that's it's right. the same process of digging deeper. Exactly. See, in the book, I talk about actually not asking why. Mm-hmm. And I know that's a little bit provocative because you've got the five whys, which is actually a great discipline, and you've got Simon Sinek is like, start with why. And I'm like, you know what, all of that's true. But in the people I'm most writing for, busy managers and the day-to-day work on, asking why gets a little problematic because behind the why are a couple of things. First of all, if you get the tone at all wrong, it sounds bad. Yeah, it sounds accusatory. Yeah, why the hell are you doing that? (laughs) Um, Secondly, um, often you're, you're, you're getting people to justify what they're doing and they're telling a story that's actually not that useful for them because they already know this stuff. And thirdly, if you're asking why, it can be because you're looking for the data so you have more information so that you can then solve their problem for them. But once you realize that you're no longer needing to solve their problem because they're going to, have, you're going to give them the first crack at doing that, then the why becomes a whole lot less relevant for you. That's fantastic. Along the same line, which of the questions seem easy but is in fact harder to have powerful conversations around? Oh, that's a really good one. Um, I, I think the, the question that gets uh, perhaps look, overlooked is actually the last one, which is a learning question. Um, because, you know, if you remember the Whitmore quote that I, I referenced and that quote about what, what is coaching, it's helping people learn rather than teaching them. Well, for that to work, you have to understand how people actually learn. 
and people don't really learn when you tell them stuff. That's the problem with advice. It goes in one ear, it goes out the other ear pretty quickly. And people don't even really learn when they do stuff. I mean, they do it, but they don't really get the aha from that. Where people learn is from the moment of reflection just after the things happened. So one of the most powerful things you can do in pretty much any, any meeting you have is at the end of it go, what was most useful or what was most valuable here for you? At the end of your one-to-one, at the end of your team meeting, at the end of your email exchange with your vendor or your contractor or your cl- or contractor or your client, what was most useful here for you does a couple of things. One is it frames this conversation as a useful conversation. So immediately people feel better about the time they've just spent with you because they're going, oh, I've just had a useful conversation. Secondly, they then extract the learning that they may miss otherwise. So actually they go away going, oh, I've just seen the real value here and here it is. And thirdly, you get feedback. So the next time you have that interaction, you can actually tweak and do things a little differently so it's more of the stuff that works and less of the other stuff. So, you know, most people hate their team meetings and most people hate their one-to-one meetings because they're boring and they're tedious and they don't seem to get very far. If you asked at the end of each one of those interactions, what was most valuable or what was most useful here for you? Um, and maybe add, what should we do differently next time? Actually, you'll see those interactions transform over time and become more useful and productive. That's fantastic. Thanks, Shelley. So which of these questions do you have the hardest time either asking or working through with your team? And what's the real challenge there for you? <laughs> I see what you're doing there. <laughs> <laughs> Cunning. All right. I think the, the, the hardest question is the foundation question. And it's what do you want? You remember talking about the drama triangle or talking about transactional analysis and adult to adult relationships. Well, you know, it's a fair question to ask, well, when we say adult to adult relationships, what, what do we actually mean by that? And one of the definitions I like of an adult to adult relationship is being able to ask for what you want, knowing that the answer may be no. But in most of our lives, most of our organizational lives and beyond, it's quite hard to ask for what you want. You f- people can feel it's inappropriate. People haven't done the thinking to figure out what they do really want. Um, And people are anxious to put that out on the table in case it gets turned down. So, you know, in some ways, I I, I sometimes think of this as the goldfish question because often when you ask somebody, well, what do you want? They'll kind of pop their eyes a little little bit and make their mouth make that little guppy shape as they go, what the the hell do I want here? Um, And, you know, I've noticed it, Charlie, when, uh, you know, if people are struggling to, say, give feedback to somebody, and they've got this anxiety about having that conversation. And often what they assume it is, it's always going to be messy and emotional and stuff. But actually, my hypothesis would be often it just means they haven't got clear on what they really want. What's the request they want to make? And as soon as you get clear on what do I want to ask for, what do I need, what do I want, the rest of that conversation often becomes very clear indeed. So I think what do I want is the one that kind of gets to people's souls fastest. And for that very reason, it's the, the trickiest one. Trickiest one for you to ask your team and so yeah. on? Yeah, tricky for me. I mean, I work with my wife, and that is both a blessing and a deep curse at times. Tell me about um, it. <laughs> you know, when it's good, it's fantastic. When it's bad, you're like having this strategic discussion, which is a code word for shouting at each other. 
um, and then going, okay, are you cooking dinner tonight or am I cooking dinner tonight? I mean, it's just awkward and weird. And who's sleeping uh, in which bed? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and um, what I fail to do often is get clear on what Marcella wants and what she needs and how those two might be different. And what else? Yeah, no. I feel like I'm now getting worked over by my own book here. Well, let me just add this, because I think this is really useful. The difference between wants and needs, because um, there's an obvious difference between the two of them, right, Charlie, which is, you know, like, I want this means it'd be nice to have it, but I need this means I really, I really want to have it. Um, but we, we connected to the nonviolent communication work of Marshall Rosenberg there, which is to say, look, your want is kind of this surface expression, but the need is a kind of deeper human desire of which there are kind of, you know, I think nine or 10, something like that. Things like I want joy or I want safety or I want communication or I want a sense of trust or a sense of freedom. And, you know, it's just, we, we were just working, my wife and I and our coach was just working through a challenge we'd had with the business where my son and I were really disagreeing on something. And, uh, it was that moment of a harness where I understood her need, which is uh, one of safety, shifted everything in that, in that conversation. So being able to kind of get to that level of hearing, I wish I did it better and I wish I did it more often. My natural question here, Michael, is to ask you, how might you do that? Um, but yeah. Yeah, that's the curse, you know, (laughs) Um, along those lines, though, you know, master coaches develop ways to avoid being asked the very questions they are so good at asking others. Yeah, look over there. (laughs) Look over there, bright, shiny object, bright, shiny object, Um, because we know where it's going, right? Right, exactly. Which of the questions (laughs) would you not want me to ask you? And what's the real challenge there for you? (laughs) Okay, now I'm completely being worked over by by my own book here. It's like, this is killing me. Um, I think you're right. You know, I um, spent a long time hiring coaches and then dodging all bullets that were fired my way because I'm kind of a you know, ninja coach and I can kind of see what's coming and make it sound like good coaching is happening even though I was not getting to the heart of it. Let me, let me, <laughs> let me cunningly avoid answering your question by asking you this. Have you ever come across a, a, an approach, a technique called immunity to change? I'm holding the original question. No, I haven't. So the reason I'm, I'm apparently diverting you away from that, that question is immunity to change has been the process that has most quickly undone my defenses as a master coach. And the key insight is this, that we were, people often set a goal for themselves uh, a change thing. I want, I'm here. I want to be there. And they struggle to do it and they keep struggling and they keep struggling and they read books and they watch Ted talks and they, they hire a coach and they still struggle to get it done, even though they really want to get it done. And the starting point is the distinction between technical change and adaptive change, technical change. You need to learn something adaptive change. You kind of need to be rewired. And the immunity to change uh, process, and this is uh, a book that I can recommend to people. It's by two two writers based out in Boston, uh, Bob Keegan 
and Lisa Leahy, which is L-A-H-E-Y. Their book is called Immunity to Change. And yeah, we'll look it up in the show notes. So Yeah, and there's a ton of stuff on the internet, you know, videos and the like around that. They share a really wonderful process in this book that what it helps you do is it helps you understand your competing commitments. So let's say that um, I have a goal in 2016 to double the impact of my company. And that's my goal. It's a big, bold, ambitious goal. And I've, I've read all the notes about scaling and growing and systems and I've got all that whole stuff. And for some reason, I just can't get it going. What that immunity change process would potentially uncover for me are one of my hidden competing commitments that keep me doing what I'm currently doing. And you know, I might discover, for instance, that I'm committed to never gambling the company or, 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 or never... Or, or, or something like something along those lines. You know, never, never taking a, a significant risk. You know, I'm committed to always playing second fiddle or something like that. And it's stuff that I might kind of know, but I don't really know. And I share that because, um, you know, as you're saying, I as a as a guy who's done some coaching and knows some of the techniques that are there, pretty good at avoiding some of the trickier questions if I want to, but there's something about the immunity to change process that because it's a process, it kind of takes your head and holds you underwater until you finally crack is the thing that's really opened up growth and insight for me. So is, there, is there a particular question that guides you from that process or do you want to pick one of your seven to say that's the one that challenges me? So I'll give you the headline process really quickly. You start off by defining your one big challenge, the thing that would be the breakthrough for you. Often the thing you've been trying to do for a number of years and for whatever reason, you just don't seem to crack it. Step number two is you actually write down all the things you're currently doing or not doing that are contrary to that goal. It's a humbling experience. And what happens you do is you imagine that all the stuff on that next list, the stuff that you're currently doing that's avoiding that goal, imagine you're doing the opposite of that. What would you now be worried about? So now it's getting interesting, which is like, ah, well, if I was doubling the business, I'd worry that I'd lose control. If I was doubling the business, I'd be worried that I would lose uh, the brand consistency that we have. Um, and then from the worry, you're going, so if you're going to avoid that worry, what, what is your commitment that allows you to avoid that worry? And these aren't noble commitments. They kind of play at small commitments. You know, I'm committed to keeping the brand perfect at all times. You know, I'm committed to never exposing the, the company to any form of criticism. I'm committed to being the only salesperson so that only I can close a deal and manage a client. You know, and all of these commitments may have helped me in the past, but they're no longer helping me get to the next level. So from the commitment, and, so, and then the final step is if you broke that commitment, what's the terrible thing that would happen? And maybe that's that question, which is it allows you to escalate and really see the deeper concern that lies behind this. And you're like, okay, so when I get to that point, almost always my, my deep, my deep apocalyptic ending is, you know, I end up dead, alone, alcoholic in a gutter somewhere. Mm -hmm. And now I understand why I'm not that keen to double the, the company because, you know, what is going to end up with me being sad and alone and 
alcoholic somewhere and no amount of reading a book is going to help me fix that. And that's what, once you see that, you then get to kind of start untangling from that position rather than from the technical position. So I think the question that's an interesting, a powerful one, and maybe at the heart of this immunity change process is, um, what are the commitments that you're holding on to that are keeping you playing small, smaller than you would like to be? Um, and that's a really interesting question and hard to answer straight off the bat, but that process allows you to kind of uncover those commitments. Great. Um, thanks for working through that, both, you know, for, you know, using your own medicine, which is fantastic. And as we become better coaches, as you make coaching a habit in, in your work and in your life, you might, I want you to be aware that you might start develop some coaching armor, right? right. And, and get to that point to where you need to start asking yourself different questions yeah. and understanding that, you know, sometimes even when you hire, you know, the, you know, Canada's top coach, um, if you don't show up in a certain way, knowing that you have the ability to, to shuck and jive and redirect, um, you're not going to get what you need to transform your own potential. Right. You know, it's, um, it's so powerful if you can find partners that will hold you in a space of vulnerability. I, you know, I have a, a, a immunity change came to me through my mastermind group, which I've had for a number of years now. And people who I know you know and love, you know, Mark Silver, Jen Loudon, Molly Gordon, Michelle Christensen, Lysenbury, um, Eric Klein. These are all extraordinarily great people. Um, and I can't get away with anything from them. Um, um, and uh, that ability to just hold me in this space of we, we see your BS, <laughs> we see your patterns. Yeah, good try, but that's not going to work with us. And so part of it is around knowing what army you wear. Part of it is around hanging out with people who can take the armor off. Yeah. Taking the armor off. Um, and also, um, as a coach, and again, we're not talking about necessarily as a profession, we're talking about a way of leading and showing up yeah. in the world. Yeah. Understanding that sometimes there are some people where you have to ask the question multiple times. Right. Um, and that's not that you're defective. It's not that you're doing it wrong. It's just that that whatever's going on, like that's part of coaching is knowing when to sit with the question. Right. And it's not that they're defective either and that they don't have the right answer or the first answer. Um, it's about understanding that sometimes it just takes a little while for the question to seep in and you do a great service by coming back to that question and saying, there's more here. Let's hold the space and let's hold the question. You know, what do you want is a question that keeps unpeeling because <laughs> your first answer is not your only answer. It's like, okay, what else do you want? All right. What else do you want? And if you go another level deeper on me, now what do you want? And you can just see how that just starts getting <laughs> exciting and terrifying at the same time. Exciting and terrifying, especially when you're being asked real time on a podcast. <laughs> All righty. You mentioned before we started recording that this book, um, you know, you had to go through some thrash on this one. This one took you three years to write as opposed yeah. to some of your faster books. What was it about this book that, that made you like have to really stand up and show up and fight through the thrash? Well, you know, first of all, it was with the other books, I kind of seen a vision of this, the shape of the book, you know, this, the arc of it and the kind of the design of it. And that allowed the content to fall in there pretty easily. 
this one, my first couple of attempts to shape it, just kind of collapsed in on themselves. They just turned out to be not very good. Um, and then interestingly, I found myself uh, working with the, the uh, publishing house that published Do More Great Work, and they didn't get the book. And they kept going, well, we, we love it, but we don't love it. <laughs> ah. yeah, yeah. Um, so then I found myself trying to write the book I thought they would love, which of course they didn't love, and now I didn't love, and now I kind of lost my way about what the hell am I trying to write here anyway. And we got to this point in December 2014 where I was like, okay, I'm clear back to what I think this book should be, and it's either a yes or a no from you. I don't mind which it is, but if it's a yes, this is how it will play out, and if it's a no, then this is how it will play out. They said no. I went, brilliant. And then I just did a really great job, and I don't always do this, but building a really strong team around writing this book. So I found a wonderful editor, in fact, Seth Godin's editor, um, Catherine Oliver, brilliant. She's also my editor as well, so yeah. Oh, brilliant. She's she's wonderful. She's quiet but deadly. (laughs) Oh, man, she's a ninja. Oh, man. Yeah, so Catherine's fantastic. Um, we've, we worked with a publishing kind of consulting house called Page Two that just did a masterful job helping us navigate the stuff we didn't even know we didn't know. Um, you know, uh, Peter Cocking is our designer. He's, a, he's an award-winning Canadian designer. I think he's designed a beautiful book. He has. Yeah, and, and there's uh, you know, others as well. And just, I now look at this book and I go, this is the book. This is what exactly what I was hoping it would be, but better. Um, and that's not always been the case when you partner up with a you know a publishing house who have their own own designs. Absolutely, traditional publishing is getting into a partnership where there are different, sometimes different, and competing needs. Yeah, exactly. And, but sometimes competing goals as well and leverage. So we'll not go into that conversation. But um, I'm, thanks for sharing that with me because you know yeah. so many so many thought leaders and people who have something that to say like will get stuck and there's like ah right what do you do well. You know, you keep at it. Yeah, and honestly, there were, I, I walked away from this book a couple of times going, I'm kind of done. And then it's just useful to know this keeps coming back and kind of connects to that idea of great work, which is this is the thing I could do that I would think would have the most impact. So let me not wimp out here. Let me keep, let me go through the dip and get out the other side. Yeah, I'm so glad you worked through the thrash on that one too. Um, just, it's, a, it's a fantastic book. So if people from this episode remember nothing about you and your body of work, what would you want that one thing to be? Excuse me, if they only remember one thing about you, what would you want it to be? Uh, if, the, if, if we're talking about my general body of work. Do you just like, you want them to like your one message, you get one song. What's that song? Um say no to more stuff so you can say yes to the right stuff. Brilliant. That would be my song. Michael, thanks so much for showing up and jamming with me about um, your book. Charlie, it's been a real pleasure. You know, you and I have been talking before you hit the record button going, why aren't we not hanging out more often? Because it's such an enjoyable conversation and this could go on for another hour or two, I'm sure. So we'll have to do that over a cup of tea or a beer or something sometime. Absolutely. We're going to make that happen. Maybe in 2016. I like the plan. Okay, Creative Giants. You just heard from Michael Bungay-Stanier, who wants to leave you the question of what can you say no to so you could say yes 
to your right thing, whether that's your great work, your best work, what matters to you, you know what we're talking about here. Exactly. We're in the beginning of the year when you hear this. What are you going to say no to this year so you can say yes to the right thing? Nice. Okay. And until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to the Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, Creative Giant.